All right, our noon hour Bible class, the book of Daniel. Uh, Last week, we did some reading in chapter 2 to get a a sense for what was happening there. Um, But what I want to do is return to that because uh, there's a lot of information in that first part. And hopefully, we will... I, I had thought as I was reading this last time, that we might get all the way over to begin the, the dream. But if we uh, take, some, uh, take Daniel's uh, thanksgiving prayer, uh, beginning in verse uh, 20, and study some of the rest of this, it's, we probably will end up starting uh, Nebuchadnezzar's actual dream uh, next week. But anyhow, we'll see how this works. So let's take a few seconds for spiritual preparation, confession of sins, and uh, then I will open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have uh, the books of the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, uh, the law, the histories, uh, poetry, and now also these uh, prophets. And we're thankful particularly for the book of Daniel because it has such a a remarkable impact on history and our understanding of history and and prophecy and how we uh, understand the times of the Gentiles. Uh, Help us... Uh, to under, to um, understand that part of it, but also help us understand uh, the application for us in our lives as we watch Daniel in this pagan society uh, calmly going about uh, your plan for his life, realizing that you do have a plan for his life, and he's not simply reacting to uh, the events that are around him. He's actually living your life in the midst of this. So uh, we pray for uh, our text this morning. Help us to understand the historical uh, context in which we find it and then also understand the lessons that are here for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week I read uh, the first part of chapter 2. But what I would like to do is return just so we have a sense of... The timing. Um, last week we finished the last part of chapter one, and we read uh, in verses uh, eighteen. Let me just pick this up. Now at the end, this is chapter one, verse eighteen. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs, the chief of the officials, brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them. All among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. Now, it says at the end of the days, and the end of the days here, we're not thinking that this is the ten days. This is the end of the three years. So we look back up in verse 5, it says... Uh, and the king appointed for them daily provisions, del- uh, food, wine, uh, for three years of training. So it's at the end of those three years that this was evaluation uh, went on. Uh, and he says at that time the king interviewed them. Uh, and Daniel found them, and they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about the about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, 
the astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued with the first uh, until the first year of King of Cyrus. So that is uh, that takes us to the end of the three years. And it also tells us, Daniel probably makes this note, and by the way, I served for 80 to 85 years, all the way up until King Cyrus. So that when we begin in chapter 2, it says, now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, well, if we sort of get the chronology correct, you'll notice um, that... If this is only the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, then Daniel probably is toward the end of the training because Nebuchadnezzar probably started the training when he was still serving with his father, Nabopolassar. But when Nabopolassar dies and uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar extends his kingdom, defeating the Assyrians and defeating the Egyptians. So the kingdom is probably almost at its fullest extent. Daniel probably, and his uh, those the cohort going with through this training with him, probably are in the last several months of their training, and that explains why, if in verse nineteen in chapter. One, it says, therefore they served before the king. Well, it doesn't appear that Daniel and his friends are before the king when we begin chapter 2. Because we have all of these uh, magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans in chapter in chapter 2, verse 2, uh, coming before the king to tell him about his dream. Well, if he had four people over here who are ten times smarter than all of these guys, you'd think they'd be there. Well, they're not. So, that tells us that Daniel, uh, when we uh, finish chapter 1, that we have sort of a summary there of the training and what happened in the training. But chapter 2... Is actually jumps into probably the last few months. Daniel's probably, and, he, and like I said, his cohort and his three friends are probably in the last uh, part of their three year training. So, that when we get to uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep sleep left him. So, uh, there's an indication here from the way this, this is established. It says Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And in the Hebrew here we have he dreamed dreams. So this is not just a dream. Uh, this is probably a dream that occurred several times, many times. Uh, and it says that the king was was troubled by it. Uh, sort of an interesting approach to this is why was the king uh, more troubled? Why is he more troubled than, let's say, someone else who has dreams? Um, that the word for troubled here is 
uh, the Hebrew hithpael, and that is a reflexive stem. And so Nebuchadnezzar saw the dreams, and he saw them over and over and over and over again. So he knows the dream. He sees this dream, and there are parts of it that he recognizes as being significant to him, probably very significant to him. Uh, And that causes him to trouble himself. That's what the reflexive stem means. He's actually causing this. He's um, working himself into a state where he is vexed, we might say. He has extreme anxiety. Uh, And the dream here is not a dream that was caused by something he ate the night before. You know, he had too many jalapenos or something like that. Uh, he recognizes this as something that's happened over and over again. So it's not, um, it, it doesn't have to do with some external force that's causing him to have these dreams. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, it's caused by what we would say is an interference into his Uh, mentality, his consciousness by God and God is now starting to work on Nebuchadnezzar Uh, I think part of this background as I was uh, researching this and reading about it is that Nebuchadnezzar has conquered uh, first of all he's joined forces with the Medes so it was um, excuse me, they'll come later He's, he's joined, but he's defeated the um, Assyrians and he's uh, campaigned all the way uh, up to the Mediterranean and down into Egypt. So he's destroyed these other empires. So he knows that even though he sits, sits uh, over the largest empire that may have ever been at that time, he, he knows that these other empires have come and gone. They've come and gone. And so as he, as he has this dream now, he realizes that there is a, um, probably a time coming when his empire will come to an end as well. Uh, he's been taught... Uh, how to run this empire. He, he, uh, he's had um, a great uh, run up to this point, but he senses that he's facing some sort of a personal crisis here, and that's what causes his soul to be in anguish. Now, I think, and others do as well, it's not original with me, believe that by the time we get over to uh, chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is going to declare that uh, God is the almighty God. He says, uh, when, he, when he recovers from his um, excursion, he says uh, in verse 25, he says, or, no, that's Daniel talking, uh, he comes back in verse uh, 32, and he calls the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. So it appears here, and then he also praises God from 34 through uh, 
35. So I think that he becomes a believer. Uh, I think he's humbled and he realizes that at that point, even though he's risen to the highest pinnacle that he possibly could, that there is a reason why he's there, and it's because God has allowed him to be in that position. And so what we're going to see in chapter 2 and also in chapter 3 is the progression of Nebuchadnezzar in what we could call his God consciousness. Uh, we know from uh, Ezekiel, or excuse me, um, Ecclesiastes 3:11. It tells us that God has placed eternity in our hearts, and I think that what that tells us is because God has placed eternity in our hearts, is that everybody comes to a point of God consciousness. And it's what we do with that understanding of God consciousness. We're either positive towards God consciousness or we're negative. And so I think this is an example of of, uh, Nebuchadnezzar coming to that point. Uh, God has brought him to the point where he realizes that there uh, there is a God and that his life... Is uh, is brief. It's temporary, and the question is, what is he going to do after this? So, uh, this is the first conflict we're going to see for Daniel as we begin chapter two. Now, there's going to be a crisis, and this is the real. This is really the first crisis that Daniel faces. I mean, he had, uh, or excuse me, it's his second crisis because his first crisis was how is he going to respond to this pagan environment? Is he going to go along with everything that's happening, or is there going to be a time here when he's able to express his testimony and possibly? Uh, 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 demonstrate uh, his uh, faith in the God of the universe. So, as we begin Daniel 2, we have this contrast uh, between what's happening in Nebuchadnezzar's soul and what's happening in Daniel's soul. We'll see that Nebuchadnezzar has this turmoil. Uh, he's in the midst of, of a, uh, a personal crisis. But Daniel, on the other hand, who has a soul fortified with what we would call Bible doctrine, uh, he understands the promises of God, and he's going to be able to apply them. And so he is the illustration to us of a believer who is consistently using the doctrine in his soul. We would say that he's also able to use the faith rest technique, the faith rest drill. And so he will have divine viewpoint thinking while Nebuchadnezzar is over here struggling with human viewpoint and what appears to be um, a dream that is trying to communicate to him something. And I think one of the reasons for that is that he sees what appears to be this image and then there's this stone that crushes those images, crushes the image. And so for him, he understands that there's a great significance here. Anyhow, the other thing I wanted to say is that The book of Daniel, while it has great prophecy, 
And there are probably very few prophecies in the Old Testament that are greater than this image that talks about the times of the Gentiles. That just lays everything out for us so very clearly. And then when we get back to chapter 9, we'll have the times, we have the times of the Gentiles, and then we can almost say the, the Jewish times as well, because it lays out Daniel's 70 weeks, but those that's the history of, of Israel. But Daniel really is also what we would call a wisdom book. It it provides information to us about how Daniel handles this crisis, each crisis that comes into his life. First of all, pagan environment, you have to live this way. You can't live according to your own spiritual beliefs. Well, no, Daniel um, successfully negotiates that uh, by applying the word of God. Now he has this next one where he's going to be executed and he's done nothing. He hasn't even had a chance. So he's going. there's this uh, opportunity for death. Well, in the next series, we're going to see his three friends, in chapter 3, going through the fiery furnace. So there's another crisis. Then we're going to see Daniel facing another crisis as he goes to the lion's den. And, and we go through that. So um, this is our example of how the believer is to live successfully in Satan's world. And uh, we see that in the midst of all these uh, the pressures, uh, the believer doesn't have to com- compromise. He doesn't need to disobey God. Um, he doesn't need to make doctrine a lower priority uh, in life. But Daniel uh, is able to apply all of these things. And we'll see how God works with that uh, It's not Daniel doing it on his own. It's Daniel making decisions and then God bringing about the situation, uh, bringing uh, uh, what we would call uh, calm out of chaos. And so here we have uh, Nebuchadnezzar facing this huge problem uh, in his life and it's going to become a a crisis in the life of everyone else. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's seen the dream, doesn't know anything about the dream, and so he needs to figure this out. And it's going to blow up in the palace, in the uh, throne room, and then spread to the rest of uh, the city of Babylon and uh, other wise men if they aren't able to talk to him as well. So, uh, verse 2. In verse 2 we see, Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, <clears throat> the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and they stood before the king. Now, very quickly here, the word for magicians is the Hebrew word, and it's the Hebrew word khartoum, or khartoum, and it's taken from uh, a special writing instrument. Uh, We would call it a stylist, but it was... Um, cuneiform wrote in uh, shapes, uh, triangles, geometric shapes. And so they would use this instrument to make shapes in the clay. And that's what this means. Uh, So these were what we would probably call uh, 
they were they're not necessarily writers, but they're more the academicians. They were uh, people who had been educated in literature and writing and things of that nature. But they're they but they became the soothsayers so to speak. So they're called magicians, but not in the sense that we think of them as magicians. Then the astrologers. Uh, these are the individuals who study astronomy, study the stars. Um, they're, they would read the stars and tell the future. And remember last week I said this is, when we translate this from the Hebrew into the Greek, it's the Greek word magi. So this is the magi. This this was the, the class or the category of wise men who were coming in Matthew 2 to find the king. So uh, these con- uh, conjurers, uh, and they're receiving their power from evil spirits. Uh, so we have the magicians who learned from the sacred writings of the Babylonians, the astrologers who studied the stars. Uh, the sorcerers are the ones that receive their power from evil spirits. Uh, they're, con- they're conjuring up um, probably, you know, uh, they're doing the seances and things like that. And then the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans here was a class of wise men, probably knowledgeable in Chaldean culture. That's the best maybe we can do with that, Chaldean culture. Every now and then it appears that the, the, the term Chaldean refers to all of these and that could possibly be true. But uh, they are uh, they have more of a sense of um, the Chaldean history uh, and culture and things of that nature. So, uh, verse 3. So he calls them and again, you'll notice as we go through here that Daniel and his, uh, his three friends aren't there. So they're still going through their training. And the king says to all of these uh, magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans, I've had a dream. And he says, I've great uh, Hebrew here, I've dreamed a dream. And my spirit is anxious. Um, the word anxious here means to be disturbed. Uh, it's used for uh, a stormy, a storm-tossed lake or water. So you can you have that sense. Um, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Uh, the word here for spirit is the word uh, Hebrew word ruach, and it can be translated spirit. It can be translated wind. Uh, it can be translated breath. Here. Uh, it's translated spirit, and I think that's an excellent translation, but it, recur- it, but it refers to his mind. Um, he, uh, he, internally, he's uh, disrupted, uh, concerned, worried, anxious. So that in verse 4, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. Uh, this is sort of an interesting commentary in verse 4 because when it says and they spoke to the king in Aramaic that tells us that at this point we're now going to um, uh, the book is uh, the uh, narrative and what follows for the next uh, six chapters is going to be in Aramaic 
sort of an interesting thing. And there's been a lot made of that. Um, why, you know, why it happened at this point, what's going on. But I think it's just um, the way for the author, Daniel, to indicate this shift. He's shifting away from things that were uh, pertinent to the Hebrews, and now he's going to be talking about uh, the times of the Gentiles. So, uh, this is, as I mentioned last week and also before, this is only uh, one, this is one of only two books in the Old Testament with sections written in Aramaic. This one and the book of Ezra is the other book. So, um, You'll notice also in verse 4, they say, O king, live forever. This was a way of ingratiating themselves to the king. Uh, The king has just said to them, Okay, uh, I've had a dream. I want you to tell me the dream. And, of course, these guys have no more idea what that dream could have been than uh, anyone else does, someone who's on the other side of the world. And so... They say, O king, live forever. Now, this may have been somewhat of a standard approach, but what they really need to do is to find a way for the king to tell them their dream. And so one of the ways that they do this now is to ingratiate themselves to the king. And uh, they say, O king, live forever. Well, of course, that's not going to happen. But... What they're probably saying in doing this is that may you sit on the throne for as long as you live. May you have a long life. May you not be replaced by anyone else. Uh, And that's probably uh, what they're referring to here. Now, these men, they're standing before him. They probably had done studies on dreams. They've probably uh, interpreted other people's dreams, but they've always had the dream from which to work. So uh, they might even have, um, there is a study of dreams, and it's called oneurology. Kind of an interesting word. Honorology, um, and it just means the scientific study of dreams, uh, for all that's worth. Because you know, f- for the most part, it's just a shot in the dark. There's, as I think I've said before, there's a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists and uh, others who who believe have come up with sort of a science of dreams. If this happens, then that probably means this. If this happens, it probably means this. But the fact is, we just don't know. Uh, their subconscious thoughts, and whether it has anything to do with science or not, it's pretty difficult to tell. Uh, so they've always had the dream, and they could work from the dream. They can say almost anything they wanted to, and of course it probably has no uh, foundation in reality. And of course that's one of the, the basic problems uh, in uh, human viewpoint is that you might start out with something here. I call this, you know, or we'll call this the science of dreams. So you might start out with certain facts about the dream, and you're moving in this direction, but because it's all coming through human viewpoint, pretty soon you depart 
from reality. Because while it may start with facts, it really is not dealing with uh, absolute truth. And so that's what happens here in human viewpoint thinking and uh, in paganism. It may look fine to begin at the beginning, but as you progress, you're getting further and further away from reality and from uh, the absolute truth. And that's why everything has to be grounded in the Word of God. Um, Verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. This isn't the very best translation. But what Nebuchadnezzar reasons here, and I think wisely so, because Nebuchadnezzar, you have to remember, uh, he's the son of the previous ruler. He grew up in Babylon, and these are the people that probably trained him. He's gone through all this. He knows... Uh, uh, Babylonian culture. He knows uh, their systems. And so he realizes that if he, wa- if he really wants to depend upon their ability to tell the future, then they should also be able to tell him the dream. If they have some skill or some innate ability, he reasons that uh, if they're going to convince him that they know the interpretation of the dream, then they should be able to give him the dream as well. Um, If they could supernaturally interpret his dream, they should first be able to tell him the content of it. And he says uh, here that uh, my decision is firm. Uh, In other words, I've given you a command. And... Uh, I'm firm in what I said. I'm not going to change my mind. So, it's a test. He's giving them a test. Uh, you're either, you either tell me what the dream was and the interpretation, or otherwise, I'll know you're lying to me. But, you know, the fact is, is that he already knows that. He already knows that most of what they do is not grounded in reality, but it's in supposition or in uh, guesses. And so Nebuchadnezzar is not interested in their mumbo-jumbo. He's interested in the truth. And for added motivation, he says, if you can't give me the dream and the interpretation, then you're going to be subjected to a very public, a very painful public Execution, and it says they'll be cut to pieces. Uh, this came down to us, and what was known as being drawn and quartered. So someone is taken out, and they're hacked in pieces. What they used to do is just quarter them. So get four quarters here. And then it says, after you're dead, your houses will be made into an ash heap. Is what I have in my New King James version here, uh, a, a rubbish a rubbish heap, but. That's not quite what it says. The word here for uh, ash heap or rubbish has to do with uh, a dung, a pile of dung. And what uh, they're, what he's probably saying is that not only 
will you die, but your family behind you and all of your uh, the history of your life is going to be completely destroyed and decimated because what we'll do is we'll come in and we'll dig up your house and we're going to put a public latrine there. Um, and everybody that passes by will use it for that. So this is sort of a, uh, I think, uh, God the Holy Spirit's sense of humor here. Uh, their houses are going to be made into a dung heap, or putting it politely, it's going to be made into a public latrine. So verse 6, However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. So, he puts a lot of pressure on him by saying, first of all, if you do it, you'll be greatly rewarded. But if you don't, there's going to be um, death and public humiliation for your family. Verse 7, they answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. Um, So, they know the king. The king is sort of uh, led on that he knows his dream. So they know that the king remembers his dream, and now they just need to somehow convince, uh, cajole, uh, persuade the king to divulge it to them so that they can get on with their uh, story about what in the world it could possibly mean. And the king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time, that you would buy time. The word there, Zaban, is to to buy. To buy time because you see that my decision is firm. So he says, I know you're just stalling for time. Uh, Verse 9. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. That's execution, that's death, and the destruction of your home and your family. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. See, this is, you know, this is really remarkable. Uh, anyone with this kind of power, and of course, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king here, has this power. But what he's told them is that he, if they cannot give him the answer that he wants, tell me exactly what my dream was. He knows what the, the dream is. They have no idea. But he says, if you can't tell me the dream, I'm going to execute all of you. And that's like the president probably saying, I'm going to execute the entire cabinet. We're going to wipe out uh, all the upper-level bureaucrats in all of your departments. I mean, this is a, yeah, well, today that may have been something that uh, we might ponder for a while. But uh, this is uh, an absolutely remarkable thing. Uh, And he says, uh, not only that, but he he realizes that a lot of what they do is speak lying and corrupt words before him. I mean, he knows when they come in and give him their advice, whatever it is, it's an indication that he knows that... um, a lot of times they'll get together and it's a conspiracy against him to say, well, we'll tell him this. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such a thing of any magicians, astrologers, or Chaldeans. Um, 
so they're saying, uh, King, you know for a fact that no one can do this. As a matter of fact, no one in any, uh, any time or any place has ever asked for it. Uh, the pharaohs haven't, the king of Assyria haven't. Um, they've all just accepted the religious systems. Uh, they've all believed the mythology. And so that's what we have. Uh, um, uh, and, and this time, finally, they're telling the truth. No human being without assistance from the omniscient God of heaven could do this. Verse 11. Uh, it is a difficult thing that the king requests. Well, it's not difficult. It's impossible. You know, um, they're actually downplaying a little bit here. It's a difficult thing that the king requests, and there's no other, no, uh, other, no other one who can tell to the king except the gods. There's no other who can tell the king except the gods whose dwelling is not flesh. Now, uh, they introduce the term gods here. And, what is, and, and without knowing it, what they've done is they've set the stage for Daniel. And, it kind of, and the, the author does the same thing for us. Because they make it clear that they can't do it. They've put themselves in a box. They've said, listen, there's absolutely no way that we can do this. Uh, They've taken themselves out of the picture. Uh, They've said that there's no one else that can do it apart from divine revelation. So, um, this opens the door a crack for Daniel. And Daniel's going to blow that crack wide open by coming in and talking about the Word of God. So they say, apart from divine revelation can't happen and Daniel's going to walk in and say I have divine revelation and he's going to blow, blow away all the human viewpoint that's been coming before him verse 12 for this reason the king was angry and gave the command to destroy all the wise men uh, was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon uh, the term here was angry and very furious is probably uh, a phrase that uh, has one meaning. It probably means that he was exceedingly angry at this point. We have two words for angry, uh, both of them meaning angry. One angry, the other one we could say furious. So he was furiously angry, and he gives the command, go ahead and destroy all of these individuals, which means the execution squads, you know, the SS troops, whoever they were, they come charging out, uh, and they are, uh, from what we'll see in the next uh, verse uh, 14, captain the king's guard. So this is his bodyguard. These are the people that are absolutely very loyal. He knows that they will go out and carry out the execution, whereas maybe the military or somebody else might spare some of them alive. But the king's guard will carry out this execution. Uh, So they're in the process of going down the line, and that's what we have here. He gave the command to destroy, and we get to verse 13. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So they actually had started the killing. They had started the execution. And we don't have any idea how many they executed. Maybe they've worked their way through all the people that were in, uh, or quite a few people, and then they come knocking on Daniel's door because they're off doing something else they're off training and the intent here is to kill them all now one of the things I'd like to say here is that this really demonstrates that Nebuchadnezzar 
even though he is probably exceedingly uh, intelligent, he also has this temper that if he doesn't get his way, he's a a megalomaniac. If he doesn't get what he wants, he not only says, all right, I'm getting rid of all of you and I'm going to replace you. He's going to execute them all. And so we see some instability here, some mental instability in this guy, which is and possibly some paranoia, which is probably setting us up for his mental uh, collapse when we get to chapter uh, chapter four. So. Um, Verse 13 says, So the decree went out, and they began to kill the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Uh, so, uh, we can see that Daniel and his friends are not there. Uh, he's not there. They're not part of the group that could not uh, answer the question. Um, but the king's going to have them executed as well. And so, this is lunacy. Uh, you'd think at least he'd say, All right. Those of you who are here, can you tell me? No? All right, take them out and execute and bring the next group in. And at least work your way through the crowd. But he's just executing them all, even the ones who weren't there. And that's why I say I think this indicates uh, a lot of his mental instability. And this is where we now begin to see how Daniel is going to handle the crisis. Um, Someone's going to come knocking at his door. He wasn't at the meeting. He doesn't know anything about the dream. He doesn't know uh, what the conditions are. Uh, He's going to open the door, and there is going to be uh, either the member, or it looks like it's the head of the execution squad standing there, and he's saying, all right, let's go. We're heading down to the chopping block or whatever we're going to do where you're going to be executed. And so now Daniel, who knows nothing about this, is now confronted with, um, walking out of wherever he is, wherever, whatever room he's in, and walking down to being executed. So how does Daniel handle this? Is he, is he going to immediately start begging for his life? Uh, is he going to fall apart? Uh, what's going to happen? Well, we'll see that Daniel just treats this as if someone came and said, uh, what would you like to order for lunch? And so he's very calm about this. And I think the reason that Daniel is very calm about this, not only does he have uh, an understanding that he's not to worry, that God will take care of him, that his God is more powerful than any other God, but he has a sense of destiny here. Uh, And we should have a sense of destiny. Uh, This doesn't mean that uh, we couldn't die tomorrow in an accident but Daniel's standing there in front of this uh, executioner and he's thinking has God brought me all the way has, first of all uh, all the training that I received back at home back in, uh, in Judah and now I've been brought all this way uh, I've gone through all this training I've had a chance to give my testimony uh, this executioner probably knows him, and we'll see, we'll talk about that. And he says, so God's brought me all this way to be just executed here. Uh, no, Daniel knows that that's not the case, that God has brought him here for a reason. And so part of that reason now is to continue in the, in the face of this crisis, acting as a believer who calmly applies Uh, the faith, the knowledge, the doctrine in his soul. And so he'll just approach it as if it's any other problem, Um, not as a life-threatening crisis. 
you'll notice that uh, in verse 14, he says, Then with counsel, the narrative is Daniel writing then, Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered, Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So, uh, the idea here between with counsel and wisdom, uh, it has the sense of responding calmly uh, with discretion. So he doesn't say, uh, he can't do that. You know, you can't kill us. Uh, He doesn't say, who are you to kill us? So he doesn't respond with insolence, and he responds with wisdom. So it's discernment, probably with tact. He knows how to approach this situation. And again, this guy's 17, 18, 19 years old, uh, still maybe a teenager. And so he's able to respond in a way that is going to allow him to appear before the king. And that's all he has to do with Arioch. And I think that up to this point, Arioch probably knows Daniel. Daniel's reputation during these three years has spread so that they know who Daniel and his three friends are. They have a great reputation. Arioch probably respects him. Uh, how many of the other uh, astrologers, magicians, sorcerers, and Chaldeans could say, wait a minute, I'd like to have an audience with the king. And so, yeah, you're going to have an audience with the executioner. Get him down there. And they're just taking him down because the decree has already gone forth. So Arioch doesn't do that. Arioch talks to him. Uh, says, we're taking you down for execution. He says, well, uh, Daniel says, uh, I'd like to have an audience with the king. And Arioch responds to that. So uh, I think that there has to be an understanding here that Arioch uh, respects Daniel. Verse 15, he, Daniel, answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? The word here for urgent really means harsh. Or severe, um, and I think it probably can carry the sense of urgent, meaning it's harsh and severe because it has to ha- be carried out immediately, um, without um, giving anyone else an opportunity. Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel, told him exactly what had happened. Um, Daniel says uh, the punishment here doesn't seem to fit the crime just because a group of people don't know uh, you're going to kill us all. So uh, Arioch gives him the information and Arioch now is going to respond to Daniel's request in verse 16. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Now, what we're not told between verses 16, 15 and 16 is that Daniel, first of all, had to persuade Arioch to take him down to the king. Uh, Arioch has been told, execute him. So now, what is going to happen with Arioch when he walks down? It's, it's more or less like the uh, chief of the officials who sort of takes his life in his hands to feed Daniel and his three friends something other than what the king has decreed. Well, the king has made another decree here to another one of his servants, Arioch, and now Daniel is actually uh, requesting that he violate that, that he do something different. No, don't execute me. Take me to the king. 
So uh, he is successful in uh, persuading Ariok not to kill him. So uh, while that doesn't, we're not told that, it's understood here that the only way he could get down in front of the king uh, from his house is if he was able to persuade Ariok that something else could and should take place. So Daniel uh, obviously successfully does that and he's taken to the king so that he can now inform the king that I can solve the problem. Uh, We'll notice here that while Daniel has the gift of prophecy and we saw that from chapter 1 we're in verse 17 uh, it said that God uh, gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams and so God was going to be uh, providing divine revelation to him through visions and dreams so he has this and I sort of characterize it as the gift of prophecy here Daniel is confident that God has given him this gift for such a time as this uh, the phrase that we see over in Esther. So, um, he knows that, but he needs some time. Uh, he knows that God is going to provide him an answer if he asks God for this answer, but he, he needs some time. And so Daniel very calmly appears before the king and says to the king, uh, in verse, let's see, Verse uh, 16, uh, so Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. What we also don't have here, before we arrive in verse 17, is that the king um, authorized that. He acquiesced to Daniel's request. Notice that the other... Uh, astrologers and uh, sorcerers and Chaldeans and magicians, they were trying to buy time as well. They said, uh, at least the king recognized that they were stalling for time. Daniel walks in and he is able to get that time. And so this is not... Uh, we, we might say uh, Daniel has great persuasive skills, but it's more than likely it's God providing the opportunity for Daniel. Daniel makes the request, and I think that sometimes this is what's hard for us to always understand, and that is we sometimes will see a problem we'll say there's no solution. There's no possibility here. And we don't even give God a chance. You know, we won't... S- uh, go to someone and make the request, you know, whether it's our boss or maybe a, uh, a neighbor or a friend or whatever it is, to uh, to make a petition to say, well, um, would you let me do this? Uh, would you let me uh, have this or do that? Uh, because we say, that's ah, a lost cause. I, I won't do it. But Daniel doesn't do that. Daniel walks up and says, uh, oh, king, uh, give me an opportunity. And God has prepared the king to say yes. Otherwise, uh, he would have said no. I mean, that's it's the understood situation. I've said to execute everybody. But Daniel gives God the opportunity to act in his life here, to provide this information. 
He doesn't just accept it. He doesn't say, well, I guess he's made up his mind. And off we go. No, Daniel says, I can sense that this isn't right, so I'm giving him an opportunity. And I think that very there are many times when we pass up things that we either think aren't right or uh, or maybe a, a situation where we have an opportunity, uh, we just write it off uh, instead of giving God an opportunity to act in our, our, our favor. So verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies, the compassion from God of heaven, from the God of heaven, concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Uh, you'll notice here that it says that Daniel goes back to the house. What's he going to do? He makes his decision known to the, to the other three, to his companions. They're going to go back and they're going to have a prayer meeting. Uh, and it's going to be group prayer. Uh, uh, it's going to be what we would call corporate prayer. And I think that this illustrates to us the importance of us coming together for prayer meeting. Um, we do this every Wednesday night as the body of Christ, and I think that that's what the Bible tells us to do, that we, we come together as the body. Uh, and uh, corporately, we're making these petitions to the Lord, and that's what Daniel and his three friends here are going to do. Um, and we're going to see that God is going to answer their prayer. Uh, verse 19 says, uh, I think the indication here is that they pray well into the night. They don't just come back and sit and have a, a five-minute prayer meeting. But I think that it is an extensive prayer uh, petitioning the Lord to provide the answer, to give Dan- Daniel the answer. Verse 19, Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Uh, Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. What we'll do, I I thought I was going to be able to get through this praise portion of of this, but let me just read the the, uh, uh, Daniel's praise of the Lord here. We see that the secret was, in fact, the mystery. Another word for secret there would be mystery. Was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Uh, it's, normally, this would be a dream, but Daniel has this vision at night, so it's a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. By the way, the word here, the phrase "God of heaven," is used uh, extensively in Daniel, Nehemiah, and Ezra. And I think one of the reasons it is used uh, extensively in this, uh, in those these books, these three books, uh, it's not used in Esther because God's not mentioned, but in these books, is it because uh, where they were, um, very often serving uh, uh, in Babylon and in the Far East, was that these people uh, had all of these heavenly gods, you know, whether it was maybe a, maybe a Jupiter or some other star or uh, Venus or whatever it was. Those are uh, 
Roman and uh, Greco-Roman gods, but they uh, Marduk was one of them and many others. So they worshipped the gods of heaven. But Daniel and Nehemiah and Ezra knew the God of heaven. And so I think that's juxtaposed here for us. So that Daniel says in verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. See, he, where it says, and he changes the times and the seasons. God has the ability, uh, I think times and seasons here, not only tells us that, yes, God is in control of um, the, uh, the calendar and the seasons, but also God changes situations. That's uh, the sense here that we're to take from that. Uh, Daniel has this dream, so he knows that kings are going to be uh, removed. He knows that other kings are going to come, uh, empires. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Verse 22, he reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. Verse 23, I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. So, uh, uh, Daniel, you can see here, doesn't take any of the credit for himself. As soon as he has this vision, he immediately goes, returns to the Lord, thanking him in prayer for all that he's done for him. So, uh, we'll come back next week, uh, take another quick look at this prayer, see that Daniel is then going to be taken to the king and he's going to tell the king that he can answer, he can provide uh, what the king desires of him. And then uh, we'll see beginning in verse uh, 31, he's going to begin to tell the king uh, his, uh, his dream. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this example of Daniel. We're thankful that uh, he, he comes to another crisis, uh, an, an execution. The king's decree has said, execute them. But Daniel, because of the reputation he's established and because of his approach with the, the king's uh, guard here, he's able to appear before the king. And the king, who would not give time to anyone else, gives time to Daniel and his friends. And that's the time they apply that time, uh, not running around trying to come up with some sort of a solution, but returning in prayer. And simply uh, sitting quietly in earnest prayer, uh, probably very lengthy prayer, requesting that you, Father, provide the solution. And you did. And of course, as soon as the solution is provided for Daniel, in this case, it comes by way of a night vision, but they immediately praise you and thank you um, for uh, your for your majesty and uh, your character and who you are. And we know, Father, that uh, you are immutable; you don't change. So you you are the same God that's working in our lives today. And while you don't work in the same way. Um, 
you still work uh, in our lives in a way that brings honor and glory to you and in which we should have uh, firm confidence uh, realizing that you have a plan and a destiny for each one of us. And we pray, Father, that we would give you the opportunity to act in our lives uh, and demonstrate that, uh, fulfill those destinies. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.